We want to hear from you. Help us determine which books to read on the Sleepy Bookshelf by voting on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm so pleased you chose to be here tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Little Women, but before we open our book, just enjoy this moment to relax. You have nothing left to do, nothing to worry about. Take a nice big stretch in bed, whatever feels best for you in this moment. Give your body this opportunity to release any tension from the day. Now take a few deep breaths with me to help with that. Inhale and collect any worries or concerns. And now exhale and let them all go. Once more now, inhale and exhale. Wonderful. Last time, Joe was still living at Mrs. Kirk's in New York and had settled well into her new, temporary life. She began to pick up her pen again and got the itch to earn some quick money. The prize-winning sensation story she had won back home got her thinking she could do something similar for a New York publication. Her first manuscript was edited down to remove all the moral implications for her characters, but was finally accepted by the weekly volcano for a good sum in Joe's eyes. She kept producing work for them, even more sensational than the last, ensuring they were always published anonymously. During this time, Friedrich Beer had become her character study, and she had realized that he was so universally liked because of his inherent benevolence and general goodness. An evening out with local celebrities, courtesy of a fellow house guest, proved that he was also incredibly intellectual and moral, which pleased Joe even more. During a German lesson one evening, Mr. Beer happened to notice that the paper cap he had been wearing, courtesy of his young student, Tina, had been made from a newspaper not dissimilar from the weekly volcano. His open disgust for such publications set Joe to rights. She reread all her stories and was appalled and embarrassed by what she found. She immediately burnt them all in the hopes that no one should find out she had written them. She stopped writing for a time after some failed attempts, and it was soon time to return home. She was set to leave early one morning, and Frederick met her at the station to wave her off. Tonight, we pick up with all but Amy back at home, and Laurie has something to say. 
So just try to relax and breathe as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 35 Heartache Whatever his motive might have been, Loring studied to some purpose that year, for he graduated with honor and gave the Latin oration with the grace of a Phillips and the eloquence of a Demosthenes, so his friends said. They were all there, his grandfather, oh so proud, Mr. and Mrs. March, John and Meg, Joe and Beth, and all exulted over him with the sincere admiration which boys make light of at the time, but fail to win from the world by any after triumphs. I've got to stay for this confounded supper, but I shall be home early tomorrow. You'll come and meet me as usual, girls, Laurie said as he put the sisters into the carriage after the joys of the day were over. He said, girls, but he meant Joe, for she was the only one who kept up the old custom. She had not the heart to refuse her splendid, successful boy anything, and answered warmly, I'll come, Teddy, rain or shine, and march before you playing Hail the Conquering Hero Comes on a mouth harp. Laurie thanked her with a look that made her think in a sudden panic. Oh, dearie me, I know he'll say something. Then what shall I do? Evening meditation and morning work somewhat allayed her fears, and having decided that she wouldn't be vain enough to think people were going to propose when she had given them every reason to know what her answer would be, She set forth at the appointed time, hoping Teddy wouldn't do anything to make her hurt his poor feelings. A call at Meg's and a refreshing sniff and sip at the Daisy and Demijohn still further fortified her for the tete-a-tete, but when she saw a stalwart figure looming in the distance, she had a strong desire to turn about and run away. Where's the mouth harp, Joe? asked Laurie as soon as he was within speaking distance. I forgot it. And Joe took heart again, for that salutation could not be called lover-like. She always used to take his arm on these occasions. Now she did not, and he made no complaint which was a bad sign, but talked on rapidly about all sorts of faraway subjects till they turned from the road into the little path that led homeward through the grove. Then he walked more slowly, suddenly lost his fine flow of language, and now and then a dreadful pause occurred. To rescue the conversation from one of the wells of silence into which it kept falling, Joe said hastily, 
Now you must have a good long holiday. I intend to. Something in his resolute tone made Joe look up quickly to find him looking down at her with an expression that assured her the dreaded moment had come and made her put out her hand with an imploring, No, Teddy, please don't. I will, and you must hear me. It's no use, Joe. We've got to have it out, and the sooner the better for both of us, he answered, getting flushed and excited all at once. Say what you like then, I'll listen, said Joe with a desperate sort of patience. Laurie was a young lover, but he was in earnest and meant to have it out if he died in the attempt so he plunged into the subject with characteristic impetuosity, saying in a voice that would get choky now and then, in spite of manful efforts to keep it steady. I've loved you ever since I've known you, Joe. Couldn't help it. You've been so good to me. I've tried to show it, but you wouldn't let me. Now I'm going to make you hear and give it an answer, for I can't go on so any longer. I wanted to save you this. I thought you'd understand, began Joe, finding it a great deal harder than she expected. I know you did, but the girls are so strange you never know what they mean. They say no when they mean yes and drive a man out of his wits just for the fun of it, returned Laurie, entrenching himself behind an undeniable fact. I don't. I never wanted to make you care for me so, and I went away to keep you from it if I could. I thought so. It was like you. But it was no use. I only loved you all the more, and I worked hard to please you. And I gave up billiards and everything you didn't like and waited and never complained. I hoped you'd love me, though I'm not half good enough. Here there was a choke that couldn't be controlled, so he decapitated buttercups while he cleared his confounded throat. You, you are. You're a great deal too good for me. And I'm so grateful to you. And so proud and fond of you. I don't know why I can't love you as you want me to. I've tried, but I can't change the feeling. And it would be a lie to say I do when I don't. Really? Truly, Joe? He stopped short and caught both of her hands as he put the question with a look that she did not soon forget. Really? Truly, dear? They were in the grove now, close by the stile, and when the last words fell reluctantly from Joe's lips, Laurie dropped her hands and turned as if to go on. But for once in his life, the fence was too much for him so he just laid his head down on the mossy post and stood so still that Joe was frightened. Teddy, I'm sorry. So desperately sorry. I could kill myself if it would do any good. I wish you wouldn't take it so hard. I can't help it. You know it's impossible for people to make themselves love other people if they don't said Joe inelegantly but remorsefully as she softly patted his shoulder 
remembering the time when he had comforted her so long ago. They do sometimes, said a muffled voice from the post. I don't believe it's the right sort of love, and I'd rather not try it, was the decided answer. There was a long pause while a blackbird sung blithely on the willow by the river and the tall grass rustled in the wind. Presently, Joe said very soberly as she sat down on the step of the stile, Laurie, I want to tell you something. He started as if he'd been shot, threw up his head and said, Don't tell me that, Joe. I can't bear it now. Tell what? She asked, wondering at his reaction. That you love that old man. What old man? Demanded Joe, thinking he must mean his grandfather. That devilish professor you were always writing about. If you say you love him, I know I shall do something desperate. And he looked as if he would keep his word as he clenched his hands with a wrathful spark in his eyes. Joe wanted to laugh, but restrained herself and said warmly, for she too was getting excited with all this. Don't swear, Teddy. He isn't old, nor anything bad, but good and kind, and the best friend I've got next to you. Pray don't fly into a passion. I want to be kind, but I know I shall get angry if you abuse my professor. I haven't the least idea of loving him or anybody else. You will after a while. Then what will become of me? You'll love someone else too, like a sensible boy, and forget all this trouble. I can't love anyone else. And I'll never forget you, Joe. Never. Never. With a stamp to emphasize his passionate words. Oh, what shall I do with him? Joe sighed, finding that emotions were more unmanageable than she expected. You haven't heard what I wanted to tell you. Sit down and listen, for indeed I want to do right and make you happy, she said, hoping to soothe him with a little reason, which proved that she knew nothing about love. Seeing a ray of hope in that last speech, Laurie threw himself down on the grass at her feet, leaned his arm on the lower step of the stile, and looked up at her with an expectant face. Now that arrangement was not conducive to calm speech or clear thought on Joe's part, for how could she say hard things to her boy while he watched her with eyes full of love and longing? lashes still wet with the bitter drop or two, her hardness of heart had wrung from him. She gently turned his head away, saying as she stroked the wavy hair which had been allowed to grow for her sake, how touching that was, to be sure. I agree with mother that you and I are not suited to each other, because our quick tempers and strong wills will probably make us very miserable if we were so foolish as to. Joe paused a little over the last word, but Laurie uttered it with a rapturous expression. 
Marry. No, we shouldn't. If you loved me, Joe, I should be a perfect saint. For you could make me anything you like. No, I can't. I've tried and failed, and I won't risk our happiness by such a serious experiment. We don't agree, and we never shall. So we'll be good friends all our lives, but we won't go and do anything rash. Yes, we will if we get the chance, muttered Laurie rebelliously. Now do be reasonable and take a sensible view of the case, implored Joe, almost at her wit's end. I won't be reasonable. I don't want to take what you call a sensible view. It won't help me, and it only makes it harder. I don't believe you've got any heart. I wish I hadn't. There was a little quiver in Joe's voice, and thinking it a good omen, Laurie turned round, bringing all his persuasive powers to bear as he said, in the wheedlesome tone, that had never been so dangerously wheedlesome before. Don't disappoint us, dear. Everyone expects it. Grandpa has set his heart upon it. Your people like it. I can't get on without you. Say you will. And let's be happy. Do, do. Not until months afterward did Joe understand how she had the strength of mind to hold fast to the resolution she had made when she decided that she did not love her boy and never could. It was very hard to do, but she did it, knowing that delay was both useless and cruel. I can't say yes, truly, so I won't say it at all. You'll see that I'm right by and by and thank me for it. She began solemnly. I'll be hanged if I do. And Laurie bounced up off the grass, burning with indignation at the very idea. Yes, you will, persisted Joe. You'll get over this after a while and find some lovely, accomplished girl who will adore you, make a fine mistress for your fine house. I shouldn't. I'm homely awkward and odd and old, and you'd be ashamed of me and we should quarrel. I can't help it even now, you see, and I shouldn't like elegant society, and you would, and you'd hate my scribbling, and I couldn't get on without it, and we should be unhappy. I wish we hadn't done it, and everything would be horrid. Anything more? asked Glory finding it hard to listen patiently to this prophetic burst. Nothing more, except that I don't believe I shall ever marry. I'm happy as I am, and love my liberty too well to be in a hurry to give it up for any mortal man. I know better, broke in Laurie. You think so now, but there'll come a time when you care for somebody, and you'll love him tremendously and live and die for him. I know you will, it's your way, and I shall have to stand by and see it. And the despairing lover cast his hat upon the ground with a gesture that would have seemed comical if his face had not been so tragic. Yes, I will live and die for him if he ever comes and makes me love him in spite of myself, and you must do the best you can 
said Joe, losing patience with poor Teddy. I've done my best, but you won't be reasonable and it's selfish of you to keep teasing for what I can't give. I shall always be fond of you, very fond indeed as a friend, but I'll never marry you. And the sooner you believe it, the better for both of us. So now. That speech was like gunpowder. Laurie looked at her a minute as if he did not quite know what to do with himself, then turned sharply away, saying in a desperate sort of tone, You'll be sorry someday, Joe. Where are you going? She cried, for his face frightened her. To the devil, was the consoling answer. For a minute, Joe's heart stood still as he swung himself down the bank toward the river. But it takes much folly, sin or misery to send a young man to a violent death. Laurie was not of the weak sort who were conquered by a single failure. He had no thought of a melodramatic plunge, but some blind instinct led him to fling hat and coat into his boat and row away with all his might, making better time up the river than he had done in any race. Joe drew a long breath and unclasped her hands as she watched the poor fellow trying to outstrip the trouble which he carried in his heart. That will do him good. He'll come home in such a tender, penitent state of mind that I shan't dare to see him, she said, adding as she went slowly home, feeling as if she had murdered some innocent thing and buried it under the leaves. Now I must go and prepare Mr. Lawrence to be very kind to my poor boy, she'd love Beth. Perhaps he may in time. But I begin to think I was mistaken about her. Oh dear. How can girls like to have lovers and refuse them? I think it's dreadful. Being sure that no one could do it so well as herself, she went straight to Mr. Lawrence, told the hard story bravely through, and then broke down crying so dismally over her own insensibility that the kind old gentleman, though sorely disappointed, did not utter a reproach. He found it difficult to understand how any girl could help loving glory and hoped she would change her mind. But he knew even better than Joe that love cannot be forced, so he shook his head sadly and resolved to carry his boy out of harm's way, for young impetuosity's parting words to Joe disturbed him more than he would confess. When Laurie came home, dead tired but quite composed, his grandfather met him as if he knew nothing and kept up the delusion very successfully for an hour or two. But when they sat together in the twilight, time they used to enjoy so much. It was hard work for the old man to ramble on as usual, and harder still for the young one to listen to praises of the last year's successes, which to him now seemed like love's labor lost. He bore it as long as he could, 
then went to his piano and began to play. The windows were open, and Joe, walking in the garden with Beth, for once understood music better than her sister, for he played the Sonata Pathétique and played it as if he never did before. That's very fine, I dare say, but it's sad enough to make one cry. Give us something happier, lad, said Mr. Lawrence, whose kind old heart was full of sympathy, which he longed to show, but knew not how. Laurie dashed into a livelier strain, playing stormily for several minutes and would have got through bravely if in a momentary lull Mrs. March's voice had not been heard calling, Joe, dear, come in, I want you. Just what Laurie longed to say with a different meaning. As he listened, he lost his place. The music ended with a broken chord and the musician sat silent in the dark. I can't stand this, muttered the old gentleman. Up he got, groped his way to the piano, laid a kind hand on either of the broad shoulders and said as gently as a woman, I know, my boy, I know. No answer for an instant. Then Laurie asked sharply, Who told you? Joe herself. (laughs) Then there's an end of it. And he shook off his grandfather's hand with an impatient motion. For though grateful for the sympathy, his man's pride could not bear a man's pity. Not quite. I want to say one thing. There shall be an end of it, returned Mr. Lawrence with unusual mildness. You won't care to stay at home now, perhaps. I don't intend to run away from a girl. Joe can't prevent my seeing her, and I shall stay and do it as long as I like, interrupted Laurie in a defiant tone. Not if you are the gentleman, I think you. I'm disappointed, but the girl can't help it. The only thing left for you to do is go away for a time. Where will you go? For anywhere. I don't care what becomes of me. And Laurie got up with a reckless laugh that grated on his grandfather's ear. Take it like a man and don't do anything rash, for God's sake. Why not go abroad as you planned and forget it? I can't. But you've been wild to go. And I promised you you should when you got through college. Oh, but I did not mean to go alone and Laurie walked fast through the room with an expression which it was well his grandfather did not see. I didn't ask you to go alone. There's someone ready and glad to go with you anywhere in the world. Who, sir? Stopping to listen. Myself. Laurie came back as quickly as he went and put out his hand, saying huskily, I'm a selfish brute, but, you know, grandfather, I... Lord, help me, yes, I do know, for I've been through it all before, once in my own young days and then with your father. Now, my dear boy, 
just sit quietly down and hear my plan. It's all settled and can be carried out at once, said Mr. Lawrence, keeping hold of the young man as if fearful that he would break away as his father had done before him. Well, sir, what is it? And Laurie sat down without a sign of interest in face or voice. There is business in London that needs looking after. I meant you should attend to it. I can do it better myself. Things here will get on very well with Brooke to manage them. My partners do almost everything. I'm merely holding on until you take my place and can be off at any time. But you hate traveling, sir. I can't ask it of you at your age, began Laurie, who was grateful for the sacrifice much preferred to go alone if he went at all. The old gentleman knew that perfectly well and particularly desired to prevent it, for the mood in which he found his grandson assured him that it would not be wise to leave him to his own devices. So, stifling a natural regret at the thought of the home comforts he would leave behind him, he said stoutly, Bless your soul. I'm not superannuated yet. I quite enjoy the idea. It will do me good, and my old bones won't suffer, for traveling nowadays is almost as easy as sitting in a chair. A restless movement from Laurie suggested that his chair was not easy, or that he did not like the plan and made the old man add hastily, I don't mean to be a burden. I go because I feel you'd be happier than if I was left behind. I don't intend to gad about with you, but leave you free to go where you like while I amuse myself in my own way. I have friends in London and Paris and should like to visit them. Meantime, you can go to Italy, Germany, Switzerland, where you will, and enjoy pictures, music, scenery, and adventures to your heart's content. Now Laurie felt just then that his heart was entirely broken and the world a howling wilderness. But at the sound of certain words which the old gentleman artfully introduced into his closing sentence, the broken heart gave an unexpected leap and a green oasis or two suddenly appeared in the howling wilderness. He sighed and then said in a spiritless tone, Just as you like, sir. Doesn't matter where I go or what I do. Does to me. Remember that, my lad. I give you entire liberty, but I trust you to make an honest use of it. Promise me that, Lori. Anything you like, sir. Good thought the old gentleman. You don't care now. There'll come a time when that promise will keep you out of mischief, or I'm much mistaken. Being an energetic individual, Mr. Lawrence struck while the iron was hot, and before the blighted being recovered spirit enough to rebel, they were off. During the time necessary for preparation, Laurie bore himself as young gentlemen usually do in such cases, 
He was moody, irritable, and pensive by turns, lost his appetite, neglected his dress, and devoted much time to playing tempestuously on his piano, avoided Joe, but consoled himself by staring at her from his window with a tragic face that haunted her dreams by night and oppressed her with a heavy sense of guilt by day. Unlike some sufferers, he never spoke of his unrequited passion and would allow no one, not even Mrs. March, to attempt consolation or offer sympathy. On some accounts, this was a relief to his friends. The weeks before his departure were very uncomfortable, and everyone rejoiced that the poor, dear fellow was going away to forget his trouble and come home happy. Of course, he smiled darkly at their delusion, but passed it by with the sad superiority of one who knew that his fidelity, like his love, was unalterable. When the parting came, he affected high spirits to conceal certain inconvenient emotions which seemed inclined to assert themselves. This cheerfulness did not impose upon anybody, but they tried to look as if it did for his sake, and he got on very well till Mrs. March kissed him with a whisper full of motherly solicitude. Then, feeling that he was going very fast, he hastily embraced them all round, not forgetting the afflicted Hannah, and ran downstairs as if for his life. Joe followed a minute after to wave her hand to him if he looked round. He did look round, came back, put his arms about her as she stood on the step above him and looked up at her with a face that made his short appeal eloquent and pathetic. Oh, Joe, can't you? Daddy, dear, I wish I could. That was all, except a little pause. Then Laurie straightened himself up, said, It's all right, never mind and went away without another word. Ah, but it wasn't all right, and Joe did mind, for while the curly head lay on her arm a minute after her hard answer, she felt as if she had stabbed her dearest friend, and when he left her without a look behind him, she knew that the boy Laurie would never come again. Chapter 36 Beth's Secret When Joe came home that spring, she had been struck with a change in Beth. No one spoke of it or seemed aware of it, for it had come too gradually to startle those who saw her daily, but to her eyes sharpened by absence, it was very plain and a heavy weight fell on Joe's heart as she saw her sister's face. It was no paler, but a little thinner than in the autumn. There was a strange, transparent look about it, 
as if the mortal was being slowly refined away and the immortal shining through the frail flesh with an indescribably pathetic beauty. Joe saw and felt it, but said nothing at the time, and soon the first impression lost much of its power, for Beth seemed happy. No one appeared to doubt that she was better, and presently in other cares, Joe for a time forgot her fear. But when Laurie was gone, and peace prevailed again, the vague anxiety returned and haunted her. She had confessed her sins and had been forgiven. When she showed her savings and proposed a mountain trip, Beth had thanked her heartily, but begged not to go so far away from home. Another little visit to the seashore would suit her better, and as Grandma could not be prevailed upon to leave the babies, Joe took Beth down to the quiet place where she could live much in the open air and let the fresh sea breezes blow a little color into her pale cheeks. It was not a fashionable place, but even among the pleasant people there, the girls made few friends, preferring to live for one another. Beth was too shy to enjoy society, and Joe too wrapped up in her to care for anyone else. So they were all in all to each other, and came and went, quite unconscious of the interest they excited in those about them, who watched with sympathetic eyes the strong sister and the feeble one, always together, as if they felt instinctively that a long separation was not far away. They did feel it, yet neither spoke of it, for often between ourselves and those nearest and dearest to us, there exists a reserve which it is very hard to overcome. Joe felt as if a veil had fallen between her heart and Beth's, but when she put out her hand to lift it up, there seemed something sacred in the silence, and she waited for Beth to speak. She wondered, and was thankful also, that her parents did not seem to see what she saw, and during the quiet weeks when the shadows grew so plain to her, she said nothing of it to those at home, believing that it would tell itself when Beth came back no better. She wondered still more if her sister really guessed the hard truth and what thoughts were passing through her mind during the long hours when she lay on the warm rocks with her head in Joe's lap while the winds blew healthfully over her and the sea made music at her feet. One day, Beth told her, Joe thought she was asleep, she lay so still, and putting down her book, sat looking at her with wistful eyes, trying to see signs of hope in the faint color on Beth's cheeks. 
she could not find enough to satisfy her, for the cheeks were very thin, and the hands seemed too feeble to hold even the rosy little shells they had been collecting. It came to her then, more bitterly than ever, that Beth was slowly drifting away from her, and her arms instinctively tightened their hold upon the dearest treasure she possessed. For a minute, her eyes were too dim for seeing, and when they cleared, Beth was looking up at her so tenderly that there was hardly any need for her to say, Joe dear, I'm glad you know it. I've tried to tell you, but I couldn't. There was no answer, except her sister's cheek against her own. Not even tears, for when most deeply moved, Joe did not cry. She was weaker then, and Beth tried to comfort and sustain her with her arms about her and the soothing words she whispered in her ear. I've known it for a good while, dear. Now I'm used to it. It isn't hard to think of or to bear. Try to see it so. Don't be so troubled about me, because it's best. Indeed it is. Is this what made you so unhappy in the autumn, Beth? You did not feel it then and keep it for yourself so long, did you? Asked Joe, refusing to see or say that it was best, but glad to know that Laurie had no part in Beth's trouble. Yes, I gave up hoping then, but I didn't like to own it. I tried to think it was a sick fancy. It would not let it trouble anyone. When I saw you all so well and strong and full of happy plans, it was hard to feel that I could never be like you. And then I was miserable, Joe. Oh, Beth, you didn't tell me. didn't let me comfort and help you. How could you shut me out, bear it all alone? Joe's voice was full of tender reproach, and her heart ached to think of the solitary struggle that must have gone on while Beth learned to say goodbye to health, love, and life, and take up her cross so cheerfully. Perhaps it was wrong, but I tried to do right. I wasn't sure. No one said anything. And I hoped I was mistaken. It would have been selfish to frighten you all when Mommy was so anxious about Meg. Lay me away. And you so happy with Laurie. At least I thought so then. And I thought you loved him, Beth. And I went away because I couldn't, said Joe, glad to say the truth. Beth looked so amazed at the idea that Joe smiled in spite of her pain and added softly, Then you didn't, dearie. I was afraid it was so and imagined your poor little heart full of love lornity all that while. <laughs> Why, Joe? How could I when he was so fond of you? Asked Beth as innocently as a child. 
I do love him dearly. He's so good to me. How can I help it? He could never be anything to me but my brother. I hope he truly will be sometime. <laughs> Not through me, said Joe decidedly. Amy is left for him, and they would suit excellently. But I have no heart for such things now. <laughs>